This is The Rounds Table. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Rounds Table. My name is Andre Madison, and I am one of the new rotating hosts of The Rounds Table. I'm a fifth-year general internal medicine fellow at Western University in London, and I am joined today by Dr. Aaron Spicer. Aaron is Western University's newest general internal medicine faculty member. Welcome to the rounds table, Aaron. Thank you for having me. All right, let's get started. Tell us about the article that you chose. Sure. So this article, fresh off the New England Journal of Medicine Presses on August the 28th, comes from the Partial Oral Treatment of Endocarditis Trial, or POET. And what is the bottom line of the article? As you might expect from the trial name, the goal of this Danish study was to demonstrate that switching from intravenous antibiotics to oral antibiotics was a safe treatment option for patients with left-sided endocarditis. This was an unblinded, randomized, non-inferiority trial involving 400 patients from multiple cardiac centers. All right, tell us why you chose this article. So left-sided endocarditis involving both the native and prosthetic mitral and aortic valves are a common problem that we see on the general internal medicine service. It can be further complicated by pacemaker and intracardiac defibrillator infections, and the in-hospital mortality for these patients ranges anywhere from 15 to 45%. As you well know, the standard of care outlined by the American Heart Association guidelines is six weeks of IV antibiotics to treat left-sided endocarditis. For a lot of patients, the main reason to remain in hospital after the acute phase of treatment is to simply facilitate the full course of parental oral therapy. This article is very intriguing. And as you mentioned, this is likely particularly of interest to patients who we know are persons who inject drugs. Exactly. So as clinicians, we really worry about these patients leaving the hospital with indwelling IV lines due to their risk of line abuse. Six weeks of inpatient therapy for these patients is not only expensive and resource intensive, which in itself is an important consideration when our hospitals are struggling to do more with less, but also longer hospital stays increase the risk of physical and psychological side effects. Even in patients who are deemed safe to leave the hospital with indwelling IV lines still struggle with long-term antibiotics for a number of issues, least of which is logistical issues, especially patients who live in rural communities where the community supports are sparse, line complications, including infections and thrombosis, as well as simply the stress related to having a line. So for example, patients worry about whether they can shower, whether they can swim, and oral antibiotics may reduce some of these challenges. The other reason that I think this paper is important is that the recommendations for the route and duration of antibiotics for the treatment of endocarditis is largely based on observational studies. Several observational studies have assessed the safety and efficacy for transitioning from IV to oral therapy in the treatment of right-sided endocarditis, but there's a paucity of data for left-sided disease. Nicely set up. So tell us about the study design. Sure. So this is an unblinded, randomized, non-inferiority study. It took place at multiple cardiac centers across Denmark because unlike the Canadian system, the majority of patients with endocarditis are cared for in cardiac facilities there. So I know a lot of people are skeptical about non-inferiority trials and their maybe overuse. But this feels like the perfect study design for this study question. I agree with you. So let me tell you a little bit more about how they enrolled patients. So 400 patients were enrolled, all of whom were adults diagnosed with left-sided endocarditis involving either a native or a prosthetic valve who fulfilled the modified Duke criteria 
and had positive blood cultures for Streptococcus, Enterococcus faecalis, Staphylococcus aureus, or COAG negative staphylococci. To be included, patients had to be deemed clinically stable, which meant they needed to be afebrile for at least 48 hours, their C-reactive protein less than 20, or had at least decreased by 25% from their peak, and their WBC count was less than 15. Patients were allowed to be enrolled if they had had valve surgery as part of their treatment course, and in fact, about 157 patients met that criteria. All enrolled patients had to have had either a transthoracic echocardiogram and a transesophageal echocardiogram within 48 hours of randomization to prove that there is no abscess or valvular abnormality. Some of these patients were identified as having concurrent right-sided disease and that was allowed in the inclusion criteria. Prior to randomization, all patients received at least 10 days of IV antibiotics unless they had had a valve surgery, in which case they only needed seven days of antibiotics before the randomization took place. All right, so fairly tight inclusion and exclusion criteria. Agreed. So tell us about the intervention. So after the initial treatment with the IV antibiotics, so either the 10 days or the seven days as I mentioned, patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one ratio to either continue the IV therapy, in which case they remained in the hospital, or to the arm where they transitioned to oral antibiotic regimen, in which case they had the option of being discharged from hospital. How did they choose the antibiotic regimen? So the antibiotic regimens were selected using the results of the susceptibility testing done on the blood cultures. The investigators were worried, however, that if the oral antibiotic was either not absorbed due to GI uptake or rapid metabolism, that the uh, regimen might not be as effective. So they chose to use two antibiotics from different drug classes that utilize different mechanisms of actions to minimize that risk but both of those antibiotics were based on susceptibility testing. Interesting. All right, enough's enough, let's get to the results. So the primary outcome was a composite of all-cause mortality, clinically evident embolic events from septic emboli, unplanned cardiac surgery, and a relapse of bacteremia with the same bacteria as the initial cultures. So over a six-year period, nearly 2,000 patients with suspected endocarditis were screened for eligibility at the various cardiac centers. Of those, 20%, or 400 patients, underwent randomization. The most frequent reason for exclusion was an unconfirmed diagnosis. So you remember, they had to meet both Duke criteria and undergo a TEE and a TEE. Around 10% were also included because they had an infection other than strep, enterococcus, or staphylococcus. All patients underwent a second repeat TEE within 48 hours of completing the course of antibiotics to ensure resolution of the disease. The intravenous and the control groups were well matched. In addition to the usual table two suspects of mean age, sex, and comorbidities, they also demonstrated that patients in both groups had similar distributions of mitral and aortic valve disease, prosthetic valves, pacemakers, and valvular dysfunction, as well as similar rates of the various pathogens. Furthermore, they included white count, CRP, hemoglobin, and creatinine as proxy indicators for disease severity, suggesting that neither group was significantly sicker than the other. So they followed these patients for six months and none were lost to follow up. Only four patients crossed over from the oral group into the IV therapy, but none of these were due to treatment failure and no patient switched from the IV therapy group 
to the oral therapy group after randomization. In this study, the investigators chose a risk difference, also known as the non-inferiority margin of 10%. The primary composite outcome occurred for 12% of patients in the control group and 9% of patients who had switched to oral antibiotics. So here we're going to do some quick and easy math, and the difference between the 12% and the 9% leads us to a group difference of 3 percentage points, which is well within the 10% non-inferiority margin. Even when they considered the four patients who switched from oral to IV therapy as having failed treatment, the non-inferiority margin was still met. As with most composite studies, they did break down the results of each component of the composite. And the only difference that they noted was deaths in the IV therapy group number 13 and deaths in the oral therapy group number 7. But it's important to remember that this study was not powered to draw conclusions about those individual components. This is very interesting. Again, the inclusion-exclusion criteria, it would not apply to a lot of people that we see, but I think we're going to get there. So did anything else catch your eye? Sure. We'll definitely get to that point for sure. The other interesting point that I mentioned very briefly earlier is that patients receiving IV antibiotics remained in hospital for the entire duration of their therapy. So their length of stay after randomization ranged from 14 to 25 days with a median of 19 days. So in contrast, the patients in the oral therapy group had the option of remaining in hospital or continuing their treatment as an outpatient. And so their length of stay ranged from one to 10 days with a median of three days. So this has a huge cost implication. It certainly would. I, I guess the question is certainly here locally, most of the patients that we would manage intravenously would do a component of their treatment at home. So different than in the study. I agree. The cost effectiveness wouldn't be nearly as impactful as the study population here who remain in hospital. But that being said, the cost of community care is still significant across Ontario. Absolutely. The other thing that I found interesting was that they did serum levels for patients receiving oral antibiotics, which is obviously not something that's practical in routine practice. That being said, they didn't actually adjust the antibiotic dosing based on those values. The investigators had chosen antibiotics generally thought to be highly bioavailable, and despite that, a subset of patients still had subtherapeutic levels. These patients did not have worse outcomes, however, than their peers who did have therapeutic levels, and likely this is because the regimen that was chosen by the investigators consisted of a second highly bioavailable antibiotic that was also selected based on susceptibility testing. My biggest concern with this study is, as you mentioned, Andre, generalizability. First, the exclusion criteria prohibited enrollment of patients infected with other bacterial species, and given approximately a third of our patients grow bacteria other than strep or staph or enterococcus, that leaves us with a lot of patients that will need to remain on IV therapy until a broader study is conducted. Secondly, while the study didn't purposely exclude patients with uh, drug-resistant bacteria, none were actually included, which again is quite different than the population that we're seeing in some parts of Canada. A further limitation of this study is that very few patients in the study are persons who inject drugs. Whereas a large proportion of the patients with endocarditis that we're treating in our clinical teaching units do in fact inject intravenous drugs. These patients often have social or psychological challenges that make compliance with oral antibiotic regimens less effective. And the study patients that were 
included here, we're actually seeing a follow-up two to three times per week, which is very unrealistic for patients that have addictions. The final point that I'll make in terms of limitations is that the majority of the endocarditis affecting persons who inject drugs will be right-sided, and while patients with right-sided disease were certainly not excluded from this trial, it wasn't powered to make conclusions about right-sided disease and transitioning to oral therapy. All right, take us home. What, what do you make of this study? Overall, I think it was a really interesting paper based on solid study design. We all need to be thinking about responsible use of healthcare resources, and I think this paper is a really great example of thinking critically about a guideline that isn't actually based on strong evidence, and in, instead exploring a better way of providing care. And while their exclusion criteria limit the generalizability of the results, as we mentioned, when I do have a patient that fits with this study design, I think it is going to inform how I treat them. I, I totally agree. It, it, very interesting study, and I may be a little bit less excited going through the nitty-gritty about the fact that the vast majority of people we would see with endocarditis would not be in this study. But if someone comes in the door who is does fit it, it I think we would certainly consider following what they did. All right, let's switch gears to the study that I picked, which is titled Microvascular Outcomes in Patients with Diabetes After Bariatric Surgery versus usual care, a matched cohort study. This was published in Annals of Internal Medicine in August of 2018. The first author is Rebecca O'Brien. All right, so start us off with the bottom line of this study. In this retrospective cohort study of obese patients with type 2 diabetes in the United States, bariatric surgery versus usual care was associated with a significant reduction in development of microvascular complications. Okay, so why did you choose this study? So, as you know, both in Canada and internationally, there is gaining momentum and, and support for bariatric surgery, not only for a weight loss tool, but also a method to manage the comorbidities associated with obesity. Locally here in London, as you're fully aware, we're rolling out a bariatric surgical program and so certainly of interest to, to you and I. Now there have been studies previously done that have looked at what happens to diabetes after bariatric surgery. And we know from those studies that hemoglobin A1c often will go down and bariatric surgery can in certain circumstances lead to remission of diabetes. Now, previous studies have also looked at microvascular complications after bariatric surgery, but they were either of mixed results or small in numbers or used more outdated surgical techniques. So that's what this study is here to, to try to fill that void. Okay, so what design did they use for this study? So this was a retrospective cohort study of patients from four integrated healthcare systems in the United States. So these are organizations like Kaiser Permanente, Health Partners, big data collectors. The data was primarily gathered through electronic medical records and insurance claims. The cohort in this study were patients aged 19 to 79 with BMI of greater than 35 and type 2 diabetes who underwent bariatric surgical procedure between 2005 and 2011. 
although there are numerous exclusion criteria, the main one that I think worth mentioning is that patients could not have known microvascular complications at the time of bariatric surgery. Hmm. So they couldn't have known retinopathy, nephropathy, or neuropathy. Now these patients were then matched to up to three patients in a two-step process. So the first step was your more traditional matching. So they took obese patients with type 2 diabetes who had not had a bariatric surgery and matched them by study site, age, sex, BMI, hemoglobin A1c, and insulin use, yes or no. Of those patients who were closely matched in step one, they then used a more statistical method called the Mahalanobis distance. Hmm. Yes, the Mahalanobis distance, which is a statistical methodology for almost using a multivariate analysis for matching. So what they do is they, in a model, put in a number of covariates. So in this case, age, BMI, hemoglobin A1c, duration of diabetes, and total days of healthcare use in the 24 month prior to surgery. Those who had the shortest Mahalanobis distance were felt to be the most closely matched to the cohort. The primary outcome in this study was time to incident microvascular disease. So that was a composite of retinopathy, neuropathy, or nephropathy. Now, retinopathy and neuropathy were identified using international classification for disease codes, whereas nephropathy was identified using two or more glomerular filtration rate readings of less than 60, separated by at least 90 days. I find it interesting that they use GFR and not proteinuria. I fully agree. You're sort of stealing my thunder, but I completely agree, and we will get there. So they analyzed the primary outcome using first univariate and then multivariate Cox hazard regression models. So tell me about the results then. So to get started, the the cohort itself was 4,024 patients, and they were matched to 11,059 patients. Overall, the cohort and the match groups appear quite similar. The average person in the study is a middle-aged woman with a BMI of 44 and a hemoglobin A1c of 7.1%. Now looking at comorbidities and medications, just under 20% of patients were on insulin, about 50% were on statins, just over 50% were either on ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, about 10% were current smokers, 30% former smokers. And of the surgical procedures, 76% had a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. The remaining had either a sleeve gastrectomy or an adjustable sleeve. So the key result is that of obese patients with type 2 diabetes who had a bariatric procedure, they were statistically significantly less likely to develop microvascular complications starting at one year all the way through to seven years compared to usual care. Now this was driven, the composite outcome was driven primarily by neuropathy. Now at five years, the hazards ratio was 0.41. 
So therefore, at five years, 59% less likely to develop microvascular complications if you had a bariatric procedure. Hmm. That sounds encouraging, but uh, tell me about the limitations of the study. Yeah, so there, uh, I would argue there are quite a few. The first is that this is obviously a retrospective cohort study using primarily Billings data. So we, we cannot infer causality. We cannot say that bariatric surgery led to the reduced incidence of microvascular complications. I would also argue that the primary outcome, as we sort of hinted at, allows scrutiny. The composite was driven primarily by a lower rate of neuropathy, and then secondly by retinopathy, which were both identified using ICD codes. So we don't know how physicians were actually identifying neuropathy. Was that through monofilament testing, through vibration sensing, or was it simply patient report? That we don't know from the data. And also their measure of nephropathy using GFR and proteinuria, I, I think is not optimal. The authors state that the reason for using GFR and not proteinuria is that they simply did not have enough baseline patients who had measurements of urine or of urine protein. Obviously, the issue is that creatinine can go up, therefore GFR go down for lots of reasons, including if you lose significant mass, significant muscle mass. For example, if you have a bariatric surgery. Now, previous studies have compared GFR to urine protein after bariatric surgery and found that they're similar, but I think still a bit suspicious. Two other issues. The first is that the study is obviously not randomized. So therefore, could there have been unmeasured differences between patients who either decided to or were candidates for bariatric surgery compared to those who weren't? And it's also not blinded. So could patients who had a bariatric procedure have been cared for differently? Do they see their physician more often? Are their physicians more adhered to guidelines? That we don't know. But it does, I think, open up the possibility for confounding. Now, there are quite a few strengths as well. The first is that for a cohort study, this is a fairly large study with over 4,000 in the cohort. It's also a fairly impressive effect size with a hazard ratio at five years of 0.41. And that effect being seen all the way throughout to seven years. I think the key strength is that it's quite generalizable to our population. So it, it would be commonplace to see a middle-aged woman with a BMI in the 40s, hemoglobin A1C in the low 7s, otherwise comorbidities fairly well managed, to think about bariatric surgery. These patients are a fairly common patient that we would see. Now, the authors sort of push their luck a little bit in the end. And, and in the discussion, they talk about they feel that the effect size may actually be greater than what was calculated. And they argue that because bariatric surgery can at some times in and of itself cause nephropathy, retinopathy, or neuropathy. So they say that after bariatric surgery, if hypertension is less of an issue, maybe patients will be taken off their ACE inhibitor or ARB and therefore removed from the potential nephropathic uh, protective effect. And as you know, after bariatric surgery, you can have vitamin deficiencies. So therefore, maybe those with bariatric surgery are having neuropathy for other reasons. 
And there's also this phenomenon of with acute drop in hemoglobin A1c, you can have a fairly acute proliferation of retinopathy. So maybe the effect size is actually greater. Anyway, it's hard to know how much that plays into it, uh, but, but interesting nonetheless. So given the key limitations and the key strengths that you've identified in the study, what do you take home from this paper? So I, I would argue that despite the study design and the troubles with their primary outcome, that I think the study does add further evidence that bariatric surgery should be considered in those patients with type 2 diabetes who are obese without microvascular complications at that time. So it's, it's not necessarily practice changing for me, but it, it may be practice encouraging, or for those of you who already have discussions with this type of patient, it may be practice confirming. Again, there are limitations, but I think it does add to the current evidence. For sure. All right, now let's switch gears to the good stuff segment. So Aaron, you and I are new to the rounds table, but the way I interpret the good stuff segment is that an article that is related to medicine that is either in lay press or scientific article that is not a randomized control. So tell us about the one that you picked. Sure. So I definitely picked an article that is not close to being a randomized control trial. I chose an article by Andre Picard, who is a Montreal-based public health reporter and columnist for the Globe and Mail. So his article published on August the 3rd was entitled in Amsterdam, drug checking centers make sure illegal drugs are safe for users. Should Canada do the same? So I think that this article is worth reading and quite interesting given the shifting landscape in Ontario. Our federal government's relationship with marijuana is becoming more liberal, whereas the provincial government is advocating for a reduction in safe injection sites. The latter is a serious concern for physicians who advocate for harm reduction strategies. In the Netherlands, um, although most drugs are still illegal, they recognize a continuing level of illicit drug use is inevitable. And so they tolerate personal use, but they really focus on harm reduction strategies. And that's because the problem that they feel is that the quality and the potency of the street drugs is unpredictable. And that's the aspect that really makes them unsafe. So in their commitment to harm reduction strategies, there's now 32 drug checking services throughout the Netherlands that are performing about 300 free and anonymous drug checks per week. It's a popular service amongst people who are planning to use party drugs like ecstasies. The example that they gave in the article is a gentleman who's planning to party with his friends who drops off some tablets of ecstasy that are shaped like Hello Kitty tablets. Um, and his desire is to confirm that they are in fact ecstasy. So not only does the service keep the primary users safe by assuring them that they're taking what they think that they're taking and in the amount that they're expecting, but it also allows the public health to track what's being used on the ground level, as well as identify any concerns and issue public health warnings if needed. Fascinating, and, and leave it to Amsterdam to do this, but right? it's, it seems like a next logical step in, in harm reduction. I agree. Not sure it'll happen here in Ontario, but anyway. So to switch gears to maybe a lighter topic, the article that I chose was from CBC News. So for those of you not from Canada, it's sort of the NPR equivalent. And it is titled, From Musician to Physician, Why Medical Schools Are Recruiting for Musical Ability. 
Now, this article interviews a head and neck surgeon from Newfoundland. The best part is they interview him in a pub in Newfoundland. Of course they do. Just the most maritime thing ever. But the argument in the article is that, so in, at Memorial University, which is the university in, or the medical school in Newfoundland in Canada, they've been accepting disproportionate numbers of medical students who have formal training, formal undergraduate degrees in music. They argue that not only will music likely improve dexterity and demonstrate commitment to a task or a passion, but it also, in music, there's an ongoing need in contrast or more, more thought and, and commitment to ongoing self-reflection in contrast to medicine, where self-reflection often falls by the wayside. So the, the head and neck surgeon feels that with more musicians who are, have been brought up with self-reflection, that they're probably would not be a bad thing to have more of that in medicine. Anyway, it's a fun, interesting read and some food for thought. Takes you back to your, your home roots too, it, eh? It, it does. I love it. So, all right, that is the end uh, for us today. I want to thank Aaron again for joining us. I know you're busy getting career started, so thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundtable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, Director of Quality and Evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.